0: TheOAMNetwork.com.
1: Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is a podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Adam Foss is the founder of Prosecutor Impact and a former assistant DA in Suffolk County, Massachusetts. That's in Boston. He's the adopted son of a police officer, a Marine, and a hairdresser. Adam speaks frequently about the role of prosecutors in the criminal justice system. Prosecutors have almost unfettered power over the people and communities that are impacted the most by the criminal justice system. But prosecutors are often missing from the conversation about criminal justice reform. So we thought it would be good to hear from one. All right, Adam. Thanks uh, so much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate your time. And, and as I've been preparing for for this interview, I, I found out that we we actually have a lot of, a lot in common. Even though you're a former prosecutor and I'm a public, public former public defender, we were we were both raised by white conservative Christian parents. We're both lawyers. And then it kind of gets a little different. You're black. I'm white. You, again, were a prosecutor. I was a public defender. Um, But your talking points on criminal justice reform from a prosecutor's perspective are, you know, spot on and and they're really refreshing. I think I'd like to hear first, you know, what's the most striking thing about uh, the response you get as a former prosecutor when you start saying the things that, that, you know, I say, that Justice City says, that so many reform organizations say?
0: Um, what strikes me the most is um, being reminded how many prosecutors there are with these viewpoints out there. Uh, I'm, I'm so struck all the time wherever I travel, how many prosecutors are actually in these offices who are thinking and saying lots of the things and lots of the, and having lots of the thoughts that I have. Wow. Um, uh, so it, it gives me a lot of hope. What is, all, what is equally striking is how thin of a layer of people, um, can stymie that progression? How how few people in a, in a huge office can can uh, sort of thwart the efforts and the thoughts and the hopes of of uh, hundreds of more people.
1: That's a really surprising answer. I didn't expect that at all. So, with that in mind, talk, talk about your experience in the Suffolk County um, office, which is Boston, I guess, and uh, and w- how you experienced what you just described.
0: Um, I was lucky when I was hired to go to a court where. Um, we were sort of uh, an island on our own, t- and we had a supervisor who took advantage of, of that isolation to do some progressive things. So it's really where I started learning uh, about this power that we had and the ways that we could use it differently. Um, and so, having that shelter for a few years to sort of build myself capital um, in a place where I was not under sort of like the scrutiny of the executive staff of downtown. Um, I was able to sort of like build this reputation for myself that allowed me to do some bigger, bolder things once I moved up in the office. Was that
1: your first job as a lawyer, as to be a prosecutor?
0: Yes, uh, my first job and the first job of everyone else that I started with. Uh, we were all coming fresh out of law school, and that is uh, that is a fact that is shared with most prosecutors around the country is that. Um, with limited exception, most of us, this is our first job out of law school. Yeah, yeah.
1: And and about that, in your TED Talk, you said, the unfairness of it all made me want to be a defender. The power dynamic that I came to understand made me want to be a prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, talk more about that. What do you mean by that? Um,
0: I thought that the way that I was going to change things in the criminal justice system was going to be through the through the hard work uh, and determination of being a public defender like the people who are my mentors in law school and the people that I really uh, admired the work that they were doing while I was learning how to do, uh, how to be a lawyer. Um, and it took me a while to recognize, you know, the fact that these people were working so hard and so tire- tirelessly and that, you know, the days were sometimes great, but oftentimes frustrating and long were because they didn't, the, the power structure uh, was designed for, for them to have to, walk uphill all the time and all they could do was ask for things or, um, or, you know, require relief of the court for things that it wasn't really in their court, in their, in their court to, uh, make decisions that would impact the, the length and sort of severity of the case. And yet prosecutors have exactly that. Yes. Um,
1: and what's important about, about prosecutors that often gets overlooked is that, you know, your job is not to, to get a conviction. Your job is to pursue justice. Um, so with, with that in mind, I think this would be an interesting answer from you. What, what is that definition? What does justice mean from a prosecutor's, or what should it mean from a prosecutor's perspective?
0: Um, justice means that whoever is in front of me, I'm looking at them and considering every sort of aspect of their life and caring less about punishing them for the act that brought them in front of me and trying more to understand um, why they committed that act and make whatever sort of uh, resolution of that case uh, in harmony with the understandings of the, of the things that brought that person there and proportionality to resolve the harm that they've that they've created in a community. So, uh,
1: so you're describing a more holistic approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you say though to to the victim? I mean, I think you, I may have interrupted you, but to the to the victims, uh, you know, the family if it's, it's if it's a tragedy, or or you know, the victim even if it's a, if it's a minor property theft or something like that. What how does what's justice for them, and how do you balance them?
0: Uh, what's interesting is that we've we've for a long time supplanted our ideas of what justice and safety is for them, and we we don't do a lot to ask them what that looks like. And because of the work of a lot of my friends and colleagues in the reform space in particular, um, the Alliance for Safety and Justice, people started asking victims, what does this look like to you? What does safety look like? What does justice look like? And seven times out of 10, victims of crime uh, were telling us prosecutors and police, like, stop arresting and incarcerating people. That does not make people safe. That doesn't fix our problems or our communities. They want more in the way of rehabilitation and and alternatives. Uh, Obviously, you know, just anecdotally from working in a place where crime was just part of like life, it wasn't It wasn't sort of like I was the victim of the crime one time and, and I never had the experience again. It's crime is, is part of, of the soup of the day. Um, those folks never were saying, you know, put this person in jail. They'd say, um, I want my stuff back or I want my stuff fixed. Uh, I want this person to learn a lesson and I don't want them to do it again. I want them to leave me alone. <laughs> and so we can accomplish all of those things without jail. And we should be.
1: Yeah, yeah. What what community are you most familiar with? Is it Boston? Is that is that the place that you're most familiar with in terms of the criminal justice system? Yes, sir. Yeah. So so describe to us how that how widespread, if it is, that attitude is. I mean, you're, you're describing victims and, and communities that you've you've gone to who have said this doesn't work. Stop doing this. Um, is that is that a widespread opinion? How does that come about? What is the history of of prosecution and law enforcement practices in Boston that that makes um, that makes that possible?
0: Um, it's not, it's not uh, something that's unique to Boston. It's unique to the populations of people that are constantly impacted by the criminal justice system. It is not the traditional sort of like people that we think of as, as leading victim rights groups or having sort of the political or social capital that people are listening to them. It's actually the, the, fo- the folks who are the most voiceless and the most powerless are the people who live in the marginalized communities that we do most of our business in. And so while Boston is certainly the place that I learned how to be a prosecutor and how what that meant to me and what that meant to my community, I now spend my time traveling all around the country to lots of different communities and when you are talking to the people in whatever community that you're in that are most impacted by the criminal justice system, by the public welfare system, by public housing, by public education, uh, the message is is the same. the The unfortunate thing for them is that they somehow matter less to the people who are being elected and making these decisions. Um, again, because of our culture, but also sort of because of uh, the way that elections are run and because the way that capitalism runs.
1: Yeah, and, and and I guess you do travel a lot, and obviously you're familiar with things that are happening in places like Philadelphia with uh, Larry Krasner's election and. Um, what is sort of the, I don't know, the right way to ask this question, but if it's a timeline or if it's a recipe or a toolbox that that was put in place in Philadelphia to you know give voice to those communities, what what did that look like, and what what is your take on that, and how is it is it replicable in in a place like Memphis, Tennessee, or just Tennessee generally, which is a very conservative place with a very conservative outlook on crime and punishment?
0: Yeah, I would. I wonder who whose conservative view of their outlooks on crime and punishment are the ones that are donating campaigns and showing up at the, at the voting booths. Like we've done a very good job silencing the people who are most impacted by these systems and disenfranchising them to the point that it's, it's just difficult for them to get to come vote. Um, and so when you say things like that, it's it's just like, yeah, it's the same thing here in Boston. Um, but those aren't the people who are most impacted by the system. And what we've been seeing, um, even this week in, in Texas, uh, last year with Larry's D.A. Krasner's election, 2016 with uh, lots of incumbent seats going over to new candidates. Uh, the secret is in um, this new kind of election that's happening that's more about grassroots and getting out the vote and putting the people who are most impacted in front uh, of the demands. And it's it's working, frankly.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm watching it. I'm I'm very excited, and and I, I agree. I think it's a you know a largely an electoral solution, and so, um, and that gets really dicey uh, in 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 most communities, you know, because there's you know there's always two sides, and there's money, and there's you know, uh, anger and and uh, you know deeply held beliefs on both sides, and so I wonder, you know, I, I want to talk about your new organization, uh, and and I wonder how you balance, you know. What you just said, you know, the, the obvious solution here is giving voice to the voiceless, grassroots work in, deep in the communities. But also you want to equip prosecutors, right? You were a prosecutor, and you are committed to making them better at their job. So how do you balance that <laughs> that kind of advocate voice that you just shared with us with your need and, and desire to make prosecutors who are there better?
0: Um. Because I'm I'm of the fundamental belief that prosecutors have a core value that is to do good. And we come out of law school and come out of whatever other professions and go to this job because we see a problem. And we want to fix it. And that and that problem is not that there are too few black people in prison. That problem is that we have we haven't maxed out our mass incarceration numbers yet. Like we are not trying to contribute to that problem or to destroy communities or to ruin lives or to com- continue to disproportionately represent people of color in the criminal justice system. However, when we get to the job, uh, we are taught how to do the job by people who are sort of just been conditioned by the, the lumbering function of this really traditional non-innovative system, and the education that we get before we get there is completely irrelevant to executing on the on the duties that we're asked to do, particularly with regard to like the metrics we're trying to achieve. And so what I what I want to do is tap into the fact that you we have the people like Yes, this is an electoral strategy, but there's lots and lots of people out there that want to do the job. We just don't give them the right tools to do it.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. And and I, that, right, my next question is that in one of one of your talks, I heard you say that prosecutors are ill-equipped, um, and you just said that again. But um, what do you mean by that? And what are some examples? You you talk a little bit about technology uh, that can and, and should be used to help us prosecute better. Uh, what are some examples of that? And, and what do you mean by ill-equipped?
0: Um, I don't mean ill-equipped in the sense that like they're not intelligent enough to to do the job. Like the right, um, it's not rocket science what we're doing. Um, what I mean is that I spent three years in law school learning lots of things to take a test that immediately like I regurgitated onto the page of my test and then forgot about. And then I went and just picked this job at the DA's office and I came out and I was being asked to do things that are really important about people's lives that I'd never had any impact in and it would have been a really good use of my time for those three years to be learning anything about those communities um like you know fundamentally a prosecutor's job is uh rooted in human behavior humans do something we are supposed to intervene in a way that will make them not do it again that is human behavior but there, at no point in time in my entire law school experience was i learning about human behavior the largest the largest, most dangerous, volatile population that we deal with in the criminal justice system are adolescents. And uh, if we figured out how to work with adolescents uh, better in the education system and in the criminal justice system, our adult justice population would shrink dramatically. But we never learned anything about adolescents in law school. We never learned anything about adolescents in our district attorney training. And in fact, we were encouraged to get to... Adult level felony and homicide prosecution as quickly as possible, and that yeah. juvenile juvenile municipal court was somehow less important
1: yeah that 's fascinating and I, I see a lot of parallels with with public defenders you know I went straight from law school. Uh, into a public defender office, and I would argue that I was ill-equipped as well for s- those exact same reasons, and, which is why I'm encouraged by things like Gideon's Promise, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which uh, yeah. you know, does a, a lot of what you're describing, create a culture and, and do the true educating of, of public defenders uh, out, outside of law school, after law school, and I wonder, is there something on the horizon for prosecutors, or what are, what are some solutions for prosecutors to, you know, to learn these things that, that we're not learning in law school?
0: um well hopefully my organization prosecutor (laughs) Impact, is the answer thanks for the setup there yeah you you bet um that's one thing the other thing is just leadership that are that's coming into these offices and and recognizing that uh first and foremost we need to train people better that this is a training issue uh as much as it is a, a recruitment issue it's it's a training issue because you again you get people who are hungry to do the right thing they just need a little bit of like guidance towards the north star and then uh like I sort of talked about at the beginning there, there's this different generation of people uh, already on the job, but certainly coming into the job that aren't like the people that were coming in when I came in. And I was, I was of the same, you know, ilk until I really got down and dirty um, where even in just a generation ago, when I was coming in um, people were like, Oh yeah, no, the, every, we're doing things right. It's the police that are screwed up <laughs> or, or the prisons or the public defender, you know, like, we're just like no. What we're doing is fine. It's everyone else. And now I've recognized and I've seen um, that there are people inhabiting these offices, but also that are coming into these offices who want to be prosecutors, but it's because they want to do something, um, you know, remarkably different with the role.
1: Yeah. And then you know, in these offices and, and this job is, is hard. And these offices are you know full of, of human beings who who make mistakes and and do things wrong and do things overzealously or underzealously and. Um, and I think we, you know, obviously I obviously have an opinion on this. Uh, do a poor job of, of demanding accountability. Um, and you mentioned that. in one you your talks, You know, what are what are you doing as a prosecutor to fix it? To fix this. And so, talk a little bit about that. An example of something that prosecutor impact might encourage a prosecutor's office to do um, when it comes to you know being held accountable to, to mistakes or to um, you know uh, overturned convictions, things like that.
0: Yeah, I'm. So I. Uh I don't want to sound like I'm hedging or hesitating, but I don't really talk about like prosecutorial misconduct or mistakes. There, yeah. are other organi- there are other organizations that are doing that because I think like if we've already gone there, we've skipped over this part where it's just like we just don't know what we're doing. So like holding us accountable for mistakes should be something that we talk about. But it has to be after you've actually equipped the people with the, like, the right things to do. Mm-hmm. And that is not saying that there aren't people who are maliciously intentionally doing things that are, are misconduct. Or people who are doing things that don't rise to the level of misconduct, but certainly like with a little clearer vision of, of what we're supposed to be doing, people would be like, ah, eh, maybe that's not right. Um, but I I really um, am hopeful that if we get to a place where uh, offices are engaging in trainings like PI and like some of the other um, organizations out here that are working with with offices, that we get to a place where this is just the w- this is the way. Like I don't want prosecutor impact to become this business where it's like making millions of dollars and I'm, I'm the guy. I just want this to become industry standard and just teach people how, that like, this is, this is required learning before you become a DA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we can start thinking about like, okay uh, you know, this, this is egregious misconduct. Why is this happening? And look at it more like a sentinel review as opposed to what we do now, which is just like chase the stories. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, tell, tell us more about
1: prosecutor impact and then that, and that model and the, and the, uh, I mean, like specifically, what, what do you do? What do you offer?
0: Sure. We, we offer um, a variety of things That with the sort of like most engagement being um, embedding in an office with their newest prosecutors for uh, a lengthy period of time with immersive educational experience, which focuses really on three pillars. One is uh, academic learning, which is, again, what we sort of talked about, just knowing things about the populations in the, in the communities that we're in that will help us along the way. And that's things like restorative justice and adolescent brain development and local community-based organizations that are doing alternatives to incarceration work, mental health, just the things that we really should be understanding about the folks that we're serving. The second piece is to me sort of like the heart of the organization, which is experiential learning. Um, It struck me as really negligent uh, when I started at the DA's office that nobody in, uh, in my group of, of prosecutors that started had like spent any meaningful time in the community that we were going to prosecute it. it. It wasn't until like our first day that we were in that neighborhood for more than, you know, 10 minutes at a time. So um, experiential learning, just one is, again, to learn cultural competence and more of sort of like the the finer points or more nuanced points of the academic learning, but also to engage in empathy building And trying to understand populations more rather than trying to um, apply, you know, interventions that that are completely developmentally or culturally inappropriate. And then finally, is leadership training just asking sort of like or answering the question, how do you do all these things in a culture that is like very embedded in tradition? It's very embedded in risk aversion. uh, And there's lots of players with with. Uh, seemingly more power and autonomy and authority over you. So, how do you, as a young prosecutor, how do you uh, operate in in those environments and stand your ground when it when your moral compass is called into question?
1: That's that sounds like a great plan, Adam.
0: <laughs> where are you uh, Where are you working right now? Uh, I'm working uh, pretty much uh, in all corners of the country, so I have relationships. Um with the A's offices in New York and Illinois and Wisconsin and Washington State and California um, Arizona, Texas, Florida <laughs> um, Louisiana you know it, it's just it's really again to your first question it's really striking how many people are are ready and hungry for this
1: yeah yeah you're you're busy <laughs> very uh, and and I you know teased this a little bit in my my first question about about your background and and you talk pretty freely uh, about that and and, you know I think I I try to when when I speak from um, my perspective as a, a privileged white man um and, and I think you bring to this conversation and this job, um, that same privilege. And, and I wonder if you would just mind talking a little, I don't want you to spoil any talks that might be out there like Ted or TEDx. Cause I want people yeah. to watch, I want people to watch them, but I do want you to talk a little bit about that, that, uh, that aspect of, of your story of, of having privilege and how that's impacted, uh, how you got to this point.
0: Yeah. You know, like I, I spent a lot of time around people who, who look a lot like me and, Um, I say that because it always strikes me how unfair it is to me that, uh, because of the luck, literally the luck of the draw, uh, I get to be, you know, traveling around the world, talking about criminal justice reform and how it impacts people, but the impact of people don't get to because they did not win the luck of that draw. And through several experiences that I had growing up and even as an adult, um the the reminder of how lucky my privilege has made me um is something that causes you know it really drives me to to continue to fight for people that that don't have that privilege not because they didn't try hard enough because they're not smart enough or because they're not motivated enough but because they just let wound up in the wrong zip code hmm.
1: yeah yeah that's uh it's powerful stuff In uh, and, and no, and I had to bring Twitter into this, but in your, your Twitter bio, it, your, the quote in your Twitter bio is, until the lion learns to write, the story will always glorify the hunter. Right. Talk about prosecutors in, in, in that statement. Um,
0: so the, the proverb that you're referencing is, to me, a reflection of our... Uh, really bad habit not only as prosecutors but as a country is to tell this one story of our history and of our profession that makes us sound really good and makes people want to come and do this job but the the persons or the people or the things that are most impacted by the system and therefore the most marginalized and the farthest away from the microphone never get to tell their side of the story and so it always sounds like um, you know, we're doing the, the, we're doing the right thing. You know, we're, we're the United States of America and we protect the world and we, we never do anything wrong and our troops are the best and we never do anything wrong. Same thing as prosecutors. Prosecutors are just trying their hardest and we're out there, we're getting the bad guys and we're not doing anything wrong. We're not doing anything wrong. Um, and we blame the failures of our systems on the people who are most marginalized. And so to me, that proverb just represents that until we give voice to the people who are the most impacted, then the story is always going to be the same. Wow. How
1: very refreshing. Um, anything else you want to say about Prosecutor Impact? I hope I gave you a, good a chance to, to speak more about that. Um,
0: no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it is at its core a training program, but it's a place that I want people to be able to come um, and interact. I recognize the website isn't uh, super fancy right now, but people certainly are able to get in contact with me and my organization through it. But as we grow, I hope to have it be a place where I can hold up prosecutors around the country that are doing great things. I can give people resources um, to how to have these conversations in their own communities and recognize that this year of all years, 2018, we have the best opportunity um, to make some watershed criminal justice reform action happen just by voting in the right prosecutors and holding them accountable.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, I am... very excited that you're doing this work and i really really appreciate you taking the time to join us uh,
0: today no problem man i'll talk to you soon
1: that was former suffolk county massachusetts prosecutor and founder of prosecutor impact adam foss stop what you're doing right now and go watch his 2016 ted talk it's from vancouver there's a link in the description of this episode at the oamnetwork.com slash the permanent record that talk is pretty incredible Find out more about what prosecutors can do to make our communities safer at ProsecutorImpact.com. Adam has a lot of other great videos and talks. Just Google Adam Foss, F-O-S-S. He's easy to find. I'd like to thank Adam for taking the time out to chat with us today. Thanks to Gil and Carla Wirth at the OAM Network for their support of the Permanent Record and the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other fine shows at TheOAMNetwork.com. As usual, thanks to Jeff Hewlett for the original theme music, She Got Gone?, He's working on a new album, I understand, and it's got this song and some other original songs on it. Watch for it. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing somewhere. The Permanent Record needs all the subscribers it can get. Give us a rating when you do. It helps us build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.